The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by CAC, a name trusted by collectors who understand that the best insurance in today's numismatic marketplace is the peace of mind that comes from knowing that your coin is quality for the grade. CAC coins bring higher prices at auction and help level the playing field between coins graded by PCGS and NGC. You want quality coins in your collection, so before you buy, ask your dealer to show you his or her selection of CAC-approved coins. In this episode of the Coin Week podcast, Daniel Sedwick joins us to talk ingots, coinage of the Western Hemisphere, and touch on some of the amazing lots that will be up for sale later this week at Daniel Frank Sedwick's November 2018 Treasure Auction. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. No problem. My pleasure. I think it's good timing to have you on because, you know, your auction firm, Daniel Frank Sedwick, is about to have its largest treasure auction of the year, just set to take place starting on November 2 and end on November 5. And you have a number of important lots that I want to discuss while I had you here. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to get your gauge on how the world coin and treasure coin market is doing right now as we close out 2018? Well, okay. Um, generally, things really have not changed much from my perspective. You know, we do have a few segments of the business that depend on other markets like the metals market and uh, real estate and um, uh, stocks and bonds, just in as much as what those markets do kind of give people a a general feeling as to what kind of expendable income they have for things like coins. But then that's counterbalanced by the people who treat coins as investments themselves. At the end of the day, from our perspective, we sell to people who are true collectors. They are collecting as hobbyists, and it's a means of enjoyment for them, while at the same time they spend money and get the money back and then some down the line. Um, so really not much has changed. Uh, we see a lot of strength in a lot of areas um, that we handle. Um, a lot of that is because of uh, our own cultivation of it and the fact that uh, uh, the better the coins we get, the better the, the bidders we get. And then the better the bidders we get, the better the coins we get from consignment. So it just kind of perpetuates and uh, hasn't been much change is the, uh, the short answer. I think one of the benefits of the niche in which your firm operates, which I would think would be typically coins of the Western Hemisphere, dating back to the earliest years of European exploration and exploitation of it uh, to the present, is that I think collectors in the Americas resoundingly understand the significance of this material. And it is all part of a shared cultural history that seems to resonate more and more as the demographics in America become more blended. One such area where this has clearly been the case for many years now is with pre-revolutionary Cuban coinage. These are issues that were struck by the United States Mint in Philadelphia. They feature a pleasing yet simple and straightforward design. And these coins have a passionate and devoted following in the United States. You have a set of Cuban coins that I don't think much is known about in, in this auction. And I think it'll be an exciting first opportunity for a serious collector uh, to take something home that is truly remarkable. 
Well, I'll start with the second half, uh, answering to where the collectors come from. And in general, um, you're right. I mean, the United States is the biggest coin collector market in the world. Uh, but from my perspective, I see a lot of collectors from all over the world. And, and there's, uh, in the type of stuff that we deal in, as you say, mostly uh, Western Hemisphere material, we have collectors in Russia, China, Australia, South Africa, just anywhere in the world, you know. It's not just the U.S., um, mostly because there's a lot of romance to the type of material that we have. But then when you get into the more modern Latin American material, uh, a lot of that is struck in um, the United States or was struck in the United States. And the Cuban um, uh, coins are a perfect example. They were uh, designed by the well-known engraver Barber and, and struck at the Philadelphia Mint. Uh, so it's very easy to see why there would be crossover interest there. Um, that said... Uh, so far, the greatest interest I have seen uh, in these pieces has come from uh, the Cuban collectors themselves. Uh, obviously, I'm not talking about Cubans in Cuba uh, buying and bidding, but I'm talking about uh, Cuban expatriates who reside throughout the Caribbean or in Latin America or even in, in the United States. And I think that is the, that's been the biggest draw. I think you touched on that a little bit, too, is that there's uh, there's so much – uh, Latin presence in the United States that uh, uh, as the um, families become more affluent, um, certainly their ability to and interest in uh, to buy uh, rare coins from their mother countries, that uh, it's there. Now, as far as the, the Cuban set goes, uh, what we've got is something unique. Uh, when it came to us, um, we had an idea that uh, it was something very special, but uh, we had to do some research to confirm that. Uh, it's well known that um, in 1915 and 1916, when uh, Cuba became an independent republic, uh, they had uh, the Philadelphia Mint strike coins for them, both in silver and gold. And um, there's a well-known proof. There are well-known proofs too, and and um, uh, then also some very high-grade circulation issues uh, that the uh, Cuban collectors have have gone crazy over over the years, and and of course, as you say, United States collectors as well. Uh, but what we came across for this auction are pieces that are, are graded specifically as specimens. Um, and the uh, the question becomes, what is a specimen? And the distinction really actually depends on which service you're talking about, PCGS or NGC. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, these are NGC-graded pieces, uh, the, the top coin in, in the group that to start off the auction in that uh, section is lot 146. It's a 20 pesos 1915 specimen, NGC specimen 63. Uh, best that we can tell what sets this apart as a specimen is that uh, the surfaces are clearly specially prepared. You see polished lines and you see um, little imperfections like a struck-through fiber or things like that. Uh, but the details are, are exceptionally strong. The edges are, are quite a bit more raised than normal. Uh, definitely not a proof, but uh, clearly not a, a production issue either. Uh, each one of the coins in this set, uh, which is uh, we've got the, the 20, 10, um, and I believe it's the 5 that's not actually a specimen, but is instead the finest known mint state grade. Uh, then I think it's 4, 2, and 1 uh, pesos. Um, each one of them is a little bit different, but each one of them is, is noticeably different from a production issue um, uh, piece. And uh, they're all in, in very high grade as well. Um, but something like this where you're talking about a U.S. Mint product 
uh, for a very popular series with lots of collectors in a unique format, it's very exciting to, to think what might happen at, at auction. And uh, the consigner was, I think, very smart to put it up for auction instead of uh, to try to find a private buyer, uh, because when it comes to auction, you just never know what's going to happen. So we're very excited to see that. Well, when you consider that the 1916 two peso proof did almost $90,000 at auction a few years ago, that coin had a mintage of eight. And for that reason, it'll be very exciting to see how this lot plays out. The best that we can do is give it an estimate that makes sense based on everything else. And uh, our estimate is 20000 and up for the largest piece, the 20 pesos. Uh, but we'll see. You know, the other thing that uh, comes into play is whether the same person wants to own all the specimens. And uh, that's when it really gets exciting. You also have a great selection of cobs that were struck in the 18th century. Among the lots that you're offering, do you have a few favorites, you know, a few pieces that really stand out? Oh, well, in Cobbs, boy, there's just there's no end to the amount of, of things I could uh, mention there. Uh, you know, they're, uh, very typically we will get um, a lot of different what I would call trophy coins in any given auction because uh, we are the, the, um, the strongest uh, market for, for uh, that type of material. And I try to, to group it into um, uh, different mints that uh, that we cover, all the different uh, mints in the New World. And uh, in each mint, I've got uh, some, some very big highlights. It, it starts with uh, the uh, Mexico City mint, where we've got uh, the finest known um, uh, three reales, which is a, an interesting denomination in and of itself, very briefly done. Uh, but this particular one has uh, waves below the pillars, which is unique to that denomination and just uh, for part of that production. Uh, this is one of only two known in uh, that are in uh, problem-free condition. Uh, the other one is in the Banco de Mexico. Uh, so this is a, a very um, important opportunity for, for collectors of that type of material. Uh, but then you get into the gold cobs of, of Mexico, and we've got some unique things there, too. Uh, the most important one in this auction is a, uh, a Adis, an Adescudos dated 1715 uh, that is uh, designated as um, MS-64 from the 1715 fleet, but uh, there's something clearly special about this piece. It's perfectly round and has uh, much more uh, strike evident than you would normally see for this issue. It's not what we would call a royal, or the new term uh, from the documentation is galano, uh, because it is known that the royals for this year have a different dye and, and a different texture entirely. Uh, but it, what's interesting about this piece is that in 1972, this very coin was offered uh, by Shulman in New York among the gold coins uh, being sold by the Real 8 company that salvaged the 1715 fleet in that time. And uh, this coin was made was given a very special presentation in, in the catalog and uh, we even in our auction, we quote that catalog and as saying a coin not struck for the public, but for the king only and things like that. Um, so this is uh, when you put it all together, it's uh, this is definitely a, a coin that will appeal to a lot of people, but particularly to the um, the shipwreck people that, that we cater to uh, quite a bit. Um, but then, uh, like I say, that's just Mexico. Uh, if you get into um, other mints, like uh, we have a, a number of very important Santo Domingo mint pieces, which are, are quite rare, and uh, we don't certainly don't have those in every auction. Um, in um, 
Lima and, and Potosi are our usual mainstays. We've got uh, a lot of important pieces. The uh, uh, one of the most exciting ones for me is uh, in uh, the Lima pieces. We have a uh, what's known as a Star of Lima uh, eight rallies. Um, that is a very brief um, issue from 1659 to 1660 that was actually not authorized by the king. Uh, the viceroy took it upon himself to, to make some coins at a time when Lima was, was closed, was officially supposed to be closed. And so the coins were uh, struck without uh, authorization, and there's some evidence that samples were being sent back to the king and never made it, and so it continued. As soon as the king found out about it, he put a stop to it. But what's exciting about this particular piece that we have in the auction is that it's a, a very limited type where they simply forgot to put the date in the design of the coin. Uh, it's a it's from 1660. We know that by the style of the uh, of the design. But uh, you see the whole central um, portion of the coin, and there's no date as there should be. Uh, so we're excited to see what that will do. Uh, there are quite a number of. Um, uh, uh, but again, I use the term royal, but uh, the popular term now is galano, uh, which are the round presentation pieces. We have those throughout the uh, all the mints, uh, Mexico, Lima, and, and Potosi. Uh, again, when we're talking about Peru, Lima, Peru, uh, we have to talk about the gold. And we have a, a very long run of, of uh, Lima gold cobs in, in this auction, mostly from the 1715 fleet, like the, uh, the Mexican piece that I mentioned, but uh, some also that are later dates. Um, but we have a, a near near complete run starting in 1701. I guess there are some gaps, but from 1708 all the way to 1718, we have a complete date run, and all in top grades and, and uh, really beautiful pieces. You also have in your auction another amazing coin from the same country. Uh, this one was struck just 100 years later. But to me, it stands out as one of the most beautiful and distinctive designs of the period. Uh, the design features a sun and a volcano, a castle, a ship, and a cornucopia. It's a truly beautiful design from Peru. Oh, I totally agree. It's definitely one of my favorite coins um, as far as design goes and, and execution as well. Uh, there's so much artistic uh, um, symbolism going on here. Uh, I, I really think it would be hard for anybody in the coin field or outside the coin field not to appreciate uh, the, the artistry in, in this piece. Um, we have had one just like it before. Um, it is a, an issue where there are a handful of, of really choice pieces for whatever reason, whether they were the first strikes and were saved or, or what. But uh, uh, the one that we have right now is the uh, acknowledged as the finest known. It's graded NGC MS64 plus proof-like. Uh, so that gives you an idea. It's it's simply beautiful in, in every way, both uh, the design, uh, the, the quality of strike, and then, uh, of course, the grade, the technical grade. Let's switch gear and talk about ingots. You typically will have ingots in your sale, but in this sale you have both modern and, you know, for lack of a better term, classic ingots. What differentiates the two in terms of quality and the size of their collecting base? Well, there's a lot of difference, and as a matter of fact, it's funny that uh, for uh, it's rather unusual for us, but we happen to have a more modern ingot in this auction too, and we're we're excited about that one as well. It's a uh, a gold piece from the New York Assay Office, I believe, 1959 or something like that. 
Um, and it's a little ingot, but it, it definitely is in the flavor of the uh, the U.S. Uh, assay office ingots that you see from, for example, the uh, Central America, SS Central America shipwreck, uh, quite a bit later, but uh, that flavor. Totally different from the early Spanish ingots, which is mostly what we have and, and usually have. Um, we have our, our usual kind of run of, of copper, gold, and silver, uh, but what we're um, perhaps most excited about for this auction uh, is a, a, a pair of uh, the usual large silver bars. They look like bread loaves, but they're 80 pounds uh, from the Atocha shipwreck. Um, anybody connected with shipwrecks is, is very familiar with these. They found about a thousand of them, uh, but somehow over the years they, they've all found homes and have gotten quite scarce. There was a time when uh, it would be expected to pay around melt value for one of these pieces, but now there's actually a collector market and they sell for uh, multiples. Um, the two that we have in this auction, what makes them special is that they are both dated. And for whatever reason, the marking of the date on these pieces was among the uh, faintest of markings, um, not very deep, not very deeply impressed. And so with a little bit of corrosion, the date was pretty much the first thing to go. So you have to have some pretty high-grade um, bars in, in terms of preservation uh, to bring up the date in the first place. And um, what's neat is that one of them is dated 1621 and the other one's dated 1622. So they make a very nice pair. Uh, they are both from the Potosi mine, which is a, a figure that, that appears right before the date. It shows PO for Potosi. Uh, the other type of ingot that we see in this uh, grouping is uh, from the Oruro mine. Um, you can also tell the difference by the way the um, they have a, the assayer's bite, uh, which was the little test pinch to to uh, see the fineness of the check the fineness of the silver by the assayer. Anyway, these are um, the the two that we have from Potosi dated 1621, 1622. Uh, I think that uh, they're both estimated at 30,000 and up, and uh, um, we expect to get uh, every bit of that. And these pieces with these stamps on them and their primitive appearance, it's just fantastic. And just to give people a sense of the scale of these ingots, they measure over a foot long. Yeah, the uh, they do vary a little bit, but they're generally around 13, 14 inches or so. And uh, like I say, they're kind of shaped like bread loaves and... Uh, I don't know whether they are ever in from identical molds, but probably they they were, um, and just it was a matter of how how the silver flowed within that uh, that mold. Sometimes you'll see pieces of charcoal in the side um, that just kind of got into the mix when they were uh, pouring it. Um, but um, yeah, they're fairly standard shape. <clears throat> the some of the other ingots that we have are um, a little bit more neatly formed. Uh, they are the Dutch ingots that you see from 1700s shipwrecks, and they have very tight corners and very smooth surfaces in comparison to the, the cruder Spanish bars. And um, so, like I say, we, we typically have some of those in every auction, and this is no exception. Um, the markings are a little more sparse on that type. I should also mention that we have... So an example of one of the uh, or the earliest type of uh, silver bars made in the New World, and that's the Tumbaga bar. And uh, it, the timing is good. Our, um, the, uh, our vice president, Augie, has just come out with a second edition of his book about Tumbaga bars and uh, has added a lot more photos and new information. And um, so we expect to have a lot of interest in this uh, the Tumbaga bar that's in, in this sale. 
uh, Tobago is referring to the fact that it was made from a, a mixed uh, metal, uh, a mixture of copper and silver that was uh, actually native to the Tarascan culture in Mexico. Uh, Tobago is a bit of, of a misnomer. Um, in his book, uh, this edition of his book, Augie goes into some of the origin and derivation of the word Tumbaga, and it, I believe it, it comes from the Caribbean originally, if, if you follow the, uh, the wording back a little bit. Uh, I think he found the, the actual first document to use the term uh, Tumbaga was in the early 1700s in, in Philippines. So it was a, a term that was being used throughout um, the Spanish territories, but it was generally used to refer to gold and not to, to silver. Uh, but for whatever reason, that's what got attached to this when the uh, shipwreck of these bars was found in, in the uh, 1900s, uh, 1990s. And uh, it's just kind of stuck. It's like the uh, the royal terminology I used before. Galano is probably more correct, but we say royal. And here, perhaps we should say these bars are metal of Michoacan, uh, because they come from the Michoacan area of Mexico. But that's a little bit more of a mouthful, and it's easier just to say Tumbaga. One of the things that I find most fascinating when I look at these pieces, uh, in each one of them we see the story of the economic power that the Western Hemisphere would bring to bear in reshaping the world. The fact that the Europeans would go to such lengths to exploit the mineral resources of the Americas is illustrative of just how mineral poor European powers had become by the time you get to the 16th and 17th centuries, and how vital the infusion of new capital was to fund these European empires before the Industrial Revolution created vast amounts of new wealth. It's also the story of how this hemisphere carved out a path apart from Europe to become the truly powerful economic force that it is today. And so, as is the case with everything numismatic, the object tells a story. And the story of these objects is really, in many ways, an important part of the story of us. Yeah, that's true. It's a bit of a, a double-edged sword because um, for around for at that time around the world, everyone knew about a place in in what is now Bolivia, at the top of a, a mountain in in the middle of the Andes that would otherwise be not even a speck on a map, um, but a place called Potosi. And at the time, everyone around the world knew what Potosi was, and they had expressions that that uh, referred to the the, the town Potosi was uh, considered one of the, the metropolises of, of Latin America. I was there just a couple of years ago, and I can tell you it's, it's hardly a metropolis now. But uh, back at the time, it, it became a very important place for around the world simply because it, it yielded most of the world's silver at the time. Uh, this was silver that, that circulated all around the world. And unfortunately, uh, because it all left there and it was all exploited, uh, as you say, the human element, was kind of left behind, and uh, now that's uh, uh, most of Latin America is, is a bit like that, where it's uh, it's the uh, elements have, have been exploited, and and uh, the rest is kind of left for dead. Uh, but it's it's getting it's coming back. The um, the collector market, I think, within Latin America is starting to appreciate that uh, you know these this is their heritage, this is their um, their patrimony in a way, and and to have the opportunity to uh, buy and collect this material is, is should be and is very important to them now. Well, it certainly shows how important this material is to us now, as these ingots are viewed by collectors as much more valuable than the full measure of their intrinsic worth. We are fortunate to even have these things available to us today. Yes, and one thing that kind of gets forgotten about in all of this 
is that if it weren't for shipwrecks and the ability to salvage shipwrecks, these things simply would not exist. If you take the Timbaga bars, for example, it's, a, it's an excellent example because when uh, uh, my uh, partner Augie uh, did the uh, first edition of his book, uh, he got in touch with some, um, I guess, Mesoamerican specialists um, who had nothing to do with coins or shipwrecks or uh, anything outside of just the study of, of the, uh, the cultures. They knew that these things, uh, which we call Tumbaga bars, but were, like I say, properly known as metal, uh, metal of Michoacan, they knew that these things were made and existed in their time, but they certainly never in their, in their wildest dreams thought that those things still existed. And they wouldn't, in fact, exist at all if it weren't for the fact that many of them were lost on a shipwreck and recovered in our time, like I say, in the 1990s. And we see this in a lot of numismatic areas as well. Something that was practically unknown or maybe very rare at, at, at best, all of a sudden a shipwreck comes along and, and uh, there's hundreds of the, of the items that were missing for so many years or centuries. Uh, sometimes it has a market effect, but most of the time it's the opposite. It creates excitement and it uh, it gives hope to these um, people who had an interest in this area outside of the shipwrecks that, hey, now they can actually have this and, and they can collect this and they can study it. Um, it really propels the, um, the notion that uh, shipwrecks are very important and should continue to be salvaged in, in our time, it, which is an uphill battle. There's a lot of... Uh, resistance in the archaeological community to, to do just that. Um, but, um, you know, we, we remain hopeful that uh, shipwreck salvage will continue in the future. Well, that is a true point. And like I said, numismatics is really a story of now and what we do to preserve this material and to research it and enjoy it. Not only is the discovery of this material important for our hobby, but even more so is the amount of quality work being done to provide us with a better and more full understanding of this material and its purpose and origins. Even today, new treasure is washing ashore on the Florida coast. Items thought lost centuries ago are being recovered, and so too, new facts and information is coming to light. You know, with Augie's research and the research of others uh, paving the way to a better understanding of this period in our numismatic history. So Daniel, I wish you luck at your big treasure auction this week. And thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to share your personal insights about several of the pieces that you will be offering when the live session kicks off on the 2nd. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And also remember, you can download more than 100 episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free on the iTunes store. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.